The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, new stories of science fiction and fantasy with a hard-boiled twist. We sink our teeth into the nightlife and a biotech race against time to develop military-grade dragons. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. This week, we bring you part two of our discussion on the new noir-tinged science fiction and fantasy anthology, No Game for Nights. DJ Butler picks up with editors Larry Correa, Casey Azell, and contributors Griffin Barber, G. Scott Huggins, Sharon Shin, S.A. Bailey, Robert Butner, Michael Haspel, Chris Kennedy, Rob Howell, and Craig Martell. But first, the news. The September hardcover and trade paperbacks are hitting bookstore shelves everywhere. Let's take a look what we have this month. First up is No Game for Nights, edited by Larry Correa and Casey Izell. In a world of criminals, thugs, con artists, cheats, and swindlers, there must be a man to stand against the powers of darkness and corruption. A man not afraid to walk the mean streets, whether they be those of 1930s Los Angeles, an ancient fantasy realm, or some far-flung planet of a future star empire. He is a man who knows that a good man is not always a nice guy, but when the chips are down, he understands that a hero does the right thing, even if it means losing everything. Next up, we have The Blood is the Life by David Carrico. Chaim Khan was just out for a night of fun, but the young woman he encountered that night left him with something to remember her by. She turned him into a vampire. He soon finds himself thrust into a weird underground world of mysticism and enchantment as he navigates life as the newly undead, trying to reconcile his beliefs as an Orthodox Jew with the new reality that has been thrust upon him. And finally, we have Deploying Dragons by Dan Cobalt. Genetic engineer Noah Parker has at last landed the job he's long coveted, director of dragon design for the Build-A-Dragon Company. With a combination of genetic engineering and a cryptic device known as the Redwood Codex, he and his team can produce living, breathing dragons made to order. The next frontier? a contract to develop dragons for the U.S. military. Yet the specs are more challenging than anything Noah has ever designed. That's No Game for Knights, The Blood is the Life, and Deploying Dragons, all available as hardcovers or trade paperbacks and all your favorite ebook formats. And that's it for the news. So, uh, well, let's talk to you guys, Chris. Um, uh, so you, you again, have, have written a story, written a story. It's kind of a 
gang, uh, you know, walking the line among gangs uh, in, a, in like a space station environment, right? It, it is. And, and when Casey invited me to uh, the anthology, I had never written anything noir before and, and I had no idea what I was going to do. So, you know, I immediately went, okay, noir, what's, what is this? How does this work? What's going on? Oh, private investigator. Okay, great. I, I need a private investigator. Okay, great. Uh, we'll do sci-fi. He'll be out on a space station out, you know, at the edge of space. Um, we need a dark, you know, it's dark, kind of dark. Um, so uh, I happened to be watching a TV show about uh, somebody that kind of considered himself a, a dark knight, a guy named Dexter. Uh, you may be familiar. Yeah. Uh, so my main character's name is Dexter, uh, Dexter Nogales, um, and, and he finds things. Uh, as an investigator, he finds things for people, whether that's things that got stolen, kids that got kidnapped, things like that. Um, and unfortunately, he has a long relationship with uh, a woman named Kat, who is the, the femme fatale. And, and people may have seen her. Uh, this is the same person that's on the cover of uh, We Dare Four, uh, the, the woman with the bionic arm. Uh, she also appears in uh, the expanding universe seven uh, from Craig Martell. Um, so, so she gets, she's gotten around uh, a few places. Ah, thank you very much. You go. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and she shows up and, and she had something go missing. Uh, turns out that it's an antimatter warhead and it's supposed to be going to the alien race that um, they're at war with. And there's also criminals, and she needs him to find it now. Yep. Because, because you know, they may blow up the station, and everybody will be dead. Or, no stakes there, none at all. No. Or, or maybe they'll win the war, and humans will lose. Who knows? Yeah. So there's uh, there's a lot at stake there, and and everybody is against poor Dexter. Yeah. And and he has to use his hard bitten kind of personality to get through uh, all of the crime lords and doesn't always go the way he wants. Yeah. Chris, I didn't realize you'd never written noir before. Never ever. I was today years old when I learned that. That's awesome. It's a great story. You you couldn't obviously couldn't tell from the story. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, it has that great, great kind of uh, uh detective kind of over his head in chinatown yeah very much very much yeah that, that's exactly that's what it. i was going for and and just because i haven't written it didn't mean i didn't research it a lot because <laughs> with you know when you look at everybody else that's up here on this you know i didn't want to fall flat i didn't want to fall flat in front of larry casey dave you know griff all of these people that that i i love and respect and um you know so, so I, I put in some time ahead of it. It's a great yeah. story. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Now, Rob, I know your background is history. Are you a classicist specifically? Uh, more of a medievalist. Uh, medievalist. I focus on um, my area for my dissertation was going to be uh, 10th century Mercia, the borderlands between Wales mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon England. Yeah. Uh, I didn't finish my dissertation, but I had the joy of delving into Anglo-Saxon culture and Anglo-Saxon uh, history, and it's been a, I love it. I, uh, matter of fact, I just redid a, a recited a version of uh, Beowulf um, this past week, so uh, I have a lot of fun with that. 
And that actually is the root of this story. This story was going to come from, um, I was going to write an epic fantasy, and it was going to center around someone with an old English and Anglo-Saxon style persona, write what you know, that's what I know. So I started this book, A Lake Most Deep. But I fell into a trap, Casey. Um, I was rereading Raymond Chandler and Robert B. Parker's Spencer series when I started this book, and 30,000 into it, I realized I was writing a Spencer novel in a medieval fantasy version of the Tol of the Balkans, uh, which is where I had done an archaeological dig once, so I had a, an interesting place to set it. So I started a Lake Most Deep. I said, that was that was that sounds really cool, and I did it. Wrote several more books in that series, and it has exploded and become a big shared world series called The Eldris Legacy, of which Kyvan the Unkillable is the first one. But this story here is actually Edward, after finding sort of a place in this medieval Balkans, um, he's he's complete outsider. He's got a variety of skills. He can't go back home. He's lost his his place in all of the uh, halls of his land, and he has no place to go. And he ends up here looking for a job with the emperor, but he finds out that this the empire is corrupt. And in fact, he gets on the emperor's bad side. And this particular story is where he has gotten on the emperor's bad side some time ago. Along the way, he met one of the emperor's agents who he fell in love with, and she fell in love with him. Um, he found out what she was trying to do and sent her away because he couldn't, couldn't bear to kill her, but he needed to. So he sent her away. And then this story is her return and him having to deal with the crime lord she used to work for, the treachery that she used to do, uh, resolution of all of her previous actions, and furthermore, what the emperor has done to force her into all of this. So a lot of vectors going into this. It's yeah. got that femme fatale that Casey loves so dearly. I made sure that there was some of that in there and uh, much Raymond Chandler's I could put into it. Yeah. Plus you've got this penchant for uh, archaic vocabulary. Like I like the way character is not an officer or even a centurion. He's a hecaton tark, and he doesn't fight with the sword. He's got a machaira, and uh, which I think is awesome. And if some readers are find it necessary to make recourse to a dictionary, those are easy to get access to. Um, but it really adds a it really adds flavor to it. Uh, Thank you. Three, Rob. That's a lot of fun for me too to do that research. Yeah. So uh, speaking of corrupt empires, uh, uh, I guess far from corrupt empires, Craig, you wrote a story about a utopia. Oh no, you're, is your, we're not hearing you. you there we go, U utopia, yes. Oh. Uh, can you guys hear Craig? Craig, you're really the robots won the war. Uh, oh, just pretty much got killed, and now the collaborators. Are the... Let me uh, let me stop my video because I live in the okay uh, back of beyond. Now your audio sounds and, great. Uh, Take yeah, it I live in the, the back top. of beyond. I live ten miles outside Fairbanks, Alaska. So uh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm lucky to have. He just anything. wanted to use the stylish photo. Yeah. Handsome and debonair. Bow tie, yeah. Prize winner. Yeah, yeah. That was that was my pre-writer life when I was a business consultant and a lawyer. 
So uh, I'm a human now and uh, I'm wearing my Hawaii shirt. But uh, back to the uh, the story, I wanted to write one where the robots won and they took out everybody who fought back. So that left broken people and children as the only ones who were left behind. And I always believe in humanity that they will fight back no matter what, no matter who the enemy is, no matter who is uh, encroaching on uh, on who we are <clears throat> as a race. So the robots, they start getting corrupted by the humans because we're kind of good at doing that. Uh, we corrupt other races and other, other creatures, even if they are robots. So uh, they needed somebody to think outside the box. And so they grabbed this old broken detective whose whole only job and as the only employee left in the police force, he was uh, just uh, cataloging and boxing files just for some reason, something to do because he was no threat to the robots. But they brought him in to think outside the box to collect a robot head who had gone awry and they couldn't find him. So uh, they brought him in to take uh, to show them how to think outside the box. Yeah. Which is... Uh... For, for the record, I fully support our overlords and whatever they do as they're monitoring this video. It's outrageous that we would write stories about resistance and rebellion. Um, it's interesting thematically, because if you think about it in terms of that kind of noir archetype, you know, and, and I like how you talk about, you know, humanity in, in these kind of terms. Uh, does that tarnished knight who keeps trudging regardless of the circumstances and refuses to bow his head does that tell us something about what it means to be human is that guy showing us something essential about ourselves i think so i think you fight back with whatever tools you have at your command i, I spent over 20 years in the marine corps and like bob uh, in military intelligence and it, it was a different world uh, what i told my guys was that if they ever saw me shooting at somebody, we already lost. So uh, the, uh, I mean, we fought the war with our minds. Uh, we fought uh, the battles, uh, trying to stay in front of it. So the guys with the weapons, the guys with the tanks, the guys with the artillery, they could put uh, rounds on target, better, better targets, and turn the enemy around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. So most of the story is basically this kind of dialogue uh, of the, the character and the robot who's trying to get him to think outside the box to find this other robot who's gone missing. Uh, it's very engaging. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Dave. I, I really look forward to years in uh, Mike Rothman's story, Time Trials. That's okay. coming out fairly. Oh, that's coming out 23, isn't it? Uh, it is. Yeah, we're not on a we're on a on a Bain calendar, not on a Mike Rothman calendar. He just like he just fall out of his head. Uh, you'd yeah. have you'd have the second volume out by the end of the year if you were on the Mike Rothman calendar. Uh, correct. It'd be in three languages right now. Yeah, that is right. Um, <laughs> thank you. That that is coming up. Yeah, uh, Larry. I don't think we've had any conversation about your story. Um, so this is maybe a good way to come bring it back home. Tell us about the story you wrote and. And, uh, and kind of what other stories it might connect with a little bit, uh, or, or does it hint at forthcoming stories? I really liked the ending. Uh, actually, it's, uh, it's, so it, it is connected to the Monster Hunter International Universe. So like a little, little book series, you know, it sold a couple copies. People might've heard of it. Maybe. Um, yeah, no, so uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to do a period piece because once again, noir, 
Um, so the last one, I, Noir Fatale, I did a grim noir story. And this one, I went with a Monster Hunter story. And I said it in 1949, I believe, or 1950. And uh, I wanted to go classic detective. And at the time, I had been uh, watching a lot of Missing 411 <laughs> stuff. Uh, you know, but the missing people things. And so I wanted to write a guy who was fixated on that. And uh, since it's set in the Monster Hunter universe, what happens is it's a, it's a world like ours, but uh, people don't know that monsters exist and the monsters are real. Uh, this guy is not a monster hunter. He's a private detective, um, but he's hired by a monster. Um, so the narrator is actually, uh, the point of view character is actually the femme fatale who is not human. <laughs> and so the whole thing is like her take on, uh, on the detective uh, trope and the detective theme as she's following this guy around secretly to see how he's trying to solve her very monster specific problems. And uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it is a lot of fun. And it, it's quite clear from the first page that the narrator is a monster. But part of the fun is that she's is guessing what monster she is. Because uh, mm -hmm. she doesn't tell you and you sort of get these hints and is the detective on to the fact that she's a monster and following him or not? Right. Uh, um, and uh, and and yeah, then there's then there's right at the end there's a tie-in to Monster Hunter International. So I was wondering, is it is it uh, Christopher McCow? My uh, what's the what's the main character's name? I believe it's McHale, and I actually got the name from one of my charity red shirts where we uh, uh, got a bunch of names from fans uh, to pay for a. Awesome. Uh, we, we paid for another fan's spinal surgery. He needed a spinal surgery. So I've been using uh, pretty much most of the names I've used in the last several books. Um, and short okay, stories yes. have all been off of that. <laughs> so I think it's Mikhail. I, I think that's how you say it. But it, I was looking at the register list. This guy had a great hard-boiled detective name. And so I don't know if he's in here. He doesn't know he's in here yet. But congratulations. You're the main character in a Monster Hunter story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and usually when I... When I uh, tuckerize someone, they die brutally, and Mikhail's like actually the hero. So, yeah, the draw. Well, I just he was lucky enough to have like what seemed like a good 1949 tough guy detective name, so he was in luck. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so, do you think? Do you think this? Um, I mean, not without committing anybody to anything. Like, do you think that you'll be doing more period monster hunter stuff. I mean, there's obviously like the ring yes. sort of a theory, but like, would you do one in the fifties? Uh, yeah, um, not, there's not planned yet, but I do, I have been expanding the universe. Like I said, we've now got 1980s, 1970s and 1890s. Uh, so it just kind of keeps expanding into, and we've done, we've done some world war two stuff too. So it does kind of keep expanding outward. And, uh, yeah, so there's more plans, but and then I got another one, Wes Johnson coming out too, but that's contemporary. Yeah. Uh, that's what space, that's what space aliens. Expands <laughs> a different direction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So no, I, I was actually really glad. It was kind of fun for me to jump in and do a story from my universe, but I got to tell you as the editor, um, as one of the editors here with Casey and these guys killed it, Dave, they, mm -hmm. they, you, you too, everybody in this anthology, brought a really cool story with a really unique take on a theme. And it was actually, they're kind of all over the board, uh, different settings, different times, different sci-fi fantasy. Uh, some are, some are dark, some are funny. It's just all over the board. And I was honestly, I'm, I'm really proud to be attached to this project. It's just been really awesome. And these guys all turned in just 
killer stories. This is two anthologies in a row that have just kind of blown my mind with talent. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just fantastic. And we got a bunch of people who couldn't make it. I think we're, we're missing a couple authors. Um, yeah. And just fantastic stories across the board. Um, Laurel, Laurel Hamilton's not here, but she did a, she did a magical squirrel detective. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether which story made me laugh harder, her story or Scott's story, but both of them like had me, you know, side stitch in pain, you know, laughing so hard because and while they're both like solid detective stories and with solid noir themes in them, they're both hilarious, you know, just super, super funny. So yeah, it's nice like to have that like that light, you know, just like Larry was saying, you know, we, we go from we go from that to um <laughs> to, to Seth's story essay right. Bailey story um you know that is that is is super super dark but manages to manages the the difficult task of being incredibly dark and not being hopeless well I was going to say Seth's and Rob's um yeah both Rob's have too. elements of it's a, it's the broken the broken hero who's mm -hmm. been through like a lot Mm -hmm. And and they're not even really like 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 a hero is just a man doing a job, right? Mm -hmm. and, but just nails it. But they're not they're not hopeless. And there's that element of humanity in there. There's that glimpse of that. And I love that those had that. And we, and then we have the other ones. Okay, it's like going to to Griff uh, with Muck. Mm -hmm. I love that guy. And I actually love his boss too. <laughs> but then and then we got like you know um, and we have some are more actiony than others. So like you know, Chris and Michael. Uh, mm -hmm. definitely had more on the action side of things too, which was really cool. So we're like, it's very broad and, mm -hmm. and Sharon's actually got, was one of the more, uh, so got in a tight into the urban fantasy, cool, uh, kind of anti-hero, uh, vibe there. And so across the board and then, and then Craig's you're a detective, man. I feel bad for that guy. I'm talking about like a broken down dude <laughs> in, in a utopian world there with the robot masters. This was a fantastic anthology, guys. I guess I say everybody here working with you guys across the board, you guys are awesome. And I am so pleased with how this turned out. Yeah, for sure. Me too. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention um, uh, Nicole Gibbons Kurtz's story, um, All in the Family. Uh, she also does a, she also has, you know, this, this, there's a darkness to it. Um, but the, the character is not, he is broken, but he is not hopeless. Um, and, and I even love, she does this with her character and, and Griff and I kind of do it with, with Muck a little bit. And Seth definitely does it. Rob definitely does it where it's like, you know, the character, the character knows that he still has hope, but he kind of hates himself for having it. He's like, why do I even bother? But he can't, he can't help it because that's just part of his essential humanity is to not give up. You know, like Craig says, Craig's, Craig's character did the same thing. You know, I, I don't, I don't even know why I bother, but I can't, I can't do anything else because it's, a, it's a part of who I am. It's part of that. You know, what does it mean to be human versus feral that like Sharon talked about? So yeah, I absolutely agree with everything that Larry said. This was such a, such a home run from, from all of our contributors. Um, I want to make sure that we mention everybody's story. So give me a minute while I go, go through my mental catalog. Are we forgetting anybody? I, I think we got. Uh, I think Christopher, right? Oh, Christopher Rocky. Oh gosh, yeah. And his story, his guy is literally a knight. <laughs> so, of course he is. Of course yeah. he is. Yeah. He's, 
So we didn't get so Christopher. Christopher's, that was a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Christopher's story is set in his um, super successful Sun Eater series. Um, and, and, uh, um, Again, you know, the character is is literally a knight who is kind of exiled from you know the center of the empire and finds himself on this like, um, you know, it, again, it's 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 almost like Blade Runner backwater black market planet, um, and and finds himself in a in a truth sinking role. So, um, very very good story, super cool story. Yeah. We also didn't get to hear much from from you, Dave, about your story. We just heard that it was kind of for Threadgrave Miles, so we didn't hear like any that's, of the plotline. That's no, that's good. That's all it is. Uh, I will play. Well, let me play tell, if you won't do it, I'll do it, Dave, because your story is also incredibly good. Um, yeah, well, me and Casey, will, me and Casey will play the Dave Butler role for here for a second, if you yeah. want. Yeah. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll sit back. You guys can play Dave Butler. <laughs> so, so you've got, you know, like Rob said, you know, you have yours is essentially. Um, you have a, a, a pair of detectives, which was another cool aspect of the whole archetype, because now we can work in a little bit of the of the buddy cop thing, right? Um, where, you know, you have these two dudes and, um, and uh, they're, you know, a femme fatale walks in and, and presents them with a, with a question, with a problem. And, uh, you know, it's it, my favorite thing about this particular story is, is there's a moment, and we see this in a lot of noir stories, where the two heroes they realize that they're walking into a trap. They know they're walking into a trap, but they walk in anyway, because it's the right thing to do. You know, they gotta, they gotta get to the bottom of it. So um, yeah, fantastic story, fantastic story. Yeah, just cool. classic, classic fantasy adventure. And Rob talked about Falford and the Grey Mauser, and I think that's the, probably yeah. the best possible comparison. Yeah. Well, thank you. You, you did a great job playing Dave Butler, well done. <laughs> Uh, Let me get a cool I can't hat. Sing as well as you, but I say, if I had a hat through the camera, I would. Do uh, you have a guitar? Yeah, well, both, yeah, or a banjo. He's got the height, so he's. I think he's okay. Yeah, <laughs> my Solomon Kane hat's downstairs. So, oh, that's right. You have a great hat. Um, so, any other, anyone else, anyone else been sitting on a comment? Really want to make it? I don't want to shut anybody off. Uh, and I know there's enough of us that we spend most of our time just kind of waiting. Um, any, any last observations? Yeah, Rob. Well, I just wanted to follow up on something Seth said earlier. Uh, if I'm doing the math right, this comes out on the 16th of September, correct? So I likely as so we yes, we're recording this mid August. And so we're talking about a future release. Likely, uh, I'm not looking at the schedule now, but I think this comes out much closer to the release date. So when people see the video. Um, in fact, when I wind up, I, I will say as I did at the beginning, out now in hardback it'll be at, at or around the time that the book actually comes out well the reason i want to mention that is because Seth was talking about dallas and i believe on the 16th larry is going to be in dallas and as a matter of fact i'm going to be there as well at fencon um and i'm sure we're going to be talking about this book quite a bit oh that's fantastic. i'm going to be there i plan to be there i'll just see if we can get this maybe released uh right around that time for sharing um i'll i'll point that out to uh the guy who's to david Afsharad who schedules to see if we can get this scheduled for that that's awesome yeah that would be really cool that'd be really cool man i'm so jealous i wanted to go to fencon this year too <laughs> yeah that would have been fun <laughs> all right down to kc and ride with me I'm going to be at Worldcon. I mean, at World Fantasy Convention. If anybody else is going there, so. oh fun! 
All right, give me a second here. I'll say my wind-up spiel. Um, hey, once again, the book is No Game for Nights. Uh, out now from Bain Books in hardcover. I have mine a month early in hardcover. Uh, there you go. Chris's cover is more visible than mine. Uh, and in e-book, in e uh, wherever e-books are sold, DRM-free if you buy them at Bain.com, uh, as always. Thank you all very much uh, for taking the time. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Dave. Thanks very much. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a cobra. The three people seated at the table looked very much like everyone else in Cranach these days. Tired, vaguely dirty, and more than a little scared. It was hard sometimes to remember that they were among the best underground leaders Adirondack had to offer. It was even harder in the face of cobra and civilian casualties to admit that they really were reasonably good at their jobs. The first news is that, despite some crossed signals, the latest Cobra drop was successful, Borg Weissmann told the silent Central Sector underground team leaders seated around the room. Short and stocky, with lingering traces of concrete dust in hair and fingernails, Weissmann looked indeed like the civilian building contractor he actually was. But he'd retired from the Army twenty years previously as a chief tactics programmer, and he'd been proving for nearly a year now that he'd learned more than computers in that post. How many did we get? Someone sitting against the side wall asked. Cranach's share is thirty, six new teams, Weissman said. Most of those will go to North Sector to replace those that got lost in the airstrip attack a month ago. Johnny glanced at Deutsch, saw the other grimace at the memory. Their team hadn't been involved in that one at all, but details like that didn't appear to affect Deutsch's reaction. If anyone from Adirondack was involved, he seemed to react as if he personally had let his fellow Cobras down. Johnny wondered if he himself would feel similarly if the war was being fought on Horizon. Decided he probably would. We'll also be getting one of the teams here, Weissman continued. Amas already made arrangements for their living quarters, identity backgrounds and all. But given the heightened troughed activity these past few weeks, I think it might be a good idea to create a little breathing space while they're settling in. In other words, a raid. The tone of Halloran's voice made it clear it wasn't a question. Weissman hesitated, then nodded. I know you don't like to run operations so closely together, but I think it's something we ought to do. We? Deutsch spoke up from his usual corner seat. You mean you, don't you? Weissman licked his lips a brief flicker of tongue that advertised his discomfort. Deutsch had once been a sort of social buffer zone between the Cobras and Adirondack forces. 
his dual citizenship, as it were, enabling him to short-circuit misunderstandings and cultural differences. Now, in his current state of disillusionment, he was hell for anyone to deal with. I, um, assumed you'd want a squad or two along to assist you, Weissman suggested. We're certainly willing to carry our part of— Not carrying you apart is what got another cobra killed yesterday, Deutz said quietly. Maybe we'd better do this one ourselves. Ama Nunki shifted in her seat. You of all people should know better than to expect too much from us, Emil. This is Adirondack, not Earth or Centauri. We haven't got any history of warfare here to draw on. What do you call the past three years? Deutsch began hotly. On the other hand, Johnny interjected, Emil may be right on this one. We want a short, tight punch that'll make the troughs drop door-to-door searches lower on the priority list, not a big operation that may have them calling up support from the Danamore garrison. A quick cobra strike would fit the bill perfectly. Weissman visibly let out a breath, and Johnny felt an easing of tension throughout the room. More and more lately, he seemed to be taking Deutsch's old peacekeeper role in these meetings, a position he neither especially wanted nor felt he was all that good at. But someone had to do it, and Halloran had far less empathy for frontier world people than Johnny did. He could only continue as best he could and hope that Deutsch would hurry up and snap out of his low simmer. I guess I have to agree with Johnny, Halloran said. I presume you have some suggestions as to what might be ripe for picking. Weissman turned to Jakob Dane, the third person at the table. Uh, We've come up with four reasonable targets, Dane said. Of course we were thinking there'd be a full assault team going with you. Just tell us what they are, Deutsch interrupted. Yes, sir. Dane picked up a piece of paper, the flimsy sheet amplifying the slight trembling of his hands, and began to read. All four, it turned out, were essentially minor objectives. Dane apparently had as low an opinion of the underground troops as Deutsch did. Not one of those is worth the fuel it'll take to get there, Halloran snorted when he'd finished. Perhaps you'd prefer to take out the ghost focus, Amma suggested acidly. Not funny, Johnny murmured as Halloran's expression darkened. It had been certain for months that the Trofts had a major tactical headquarters somewhere in Cranach, but so far the aptly christened Ghost Focus had proved impossible to locate. It was a particular sore spot for Halloran, who'd led at least half a dozen hunting expeditions in search of the place and come up dry each time, all of which, belatedly, Amma seemed to remember. "'You're right, Johnny,' she said, ducking her head in a local gesture of apology that even Johnny found provincial. "'I'm sorry.' It's not really something to make light of. Halloran grunted a not-quite-mollified acceptance. Anyone have any genuine suggestions? he asked. What about that shipment of electronic spares that was supposed to come in yesterday? Deutz spoke up. It's here, Dane nodded. Locked up in the old Volker plant, but that won't be easy to get to. Deutsch caught Halloran's and Johnny's eyes, cocked a questioning eyebrow. Sure, why not? Halloran shrugged. A commandeered plastics factory is bound to have security loopholes the troughs haven't plugged yet. You'd think they have learned that by now, Deutsch said, getting to his feet and glancing around the room at the team leaders. Looks like we won't be needing the rest of you anymore today. Thanks for coming. Technically, none of the Cobras had the authority to close the meeting, but no one seemed eager to mention that fact. With little conversation and even less loitering, the room emptied, leaving only the Cobras and the three civilian leaders. Now, Deutsch said, addressing the latter, 
Let's see what you've got in the way of blueprints for this plant. Amma's expression was thunderous, but as it was clear the other two weren't going to make an issue of Deutsch's action, she apparently decided not to do so either. Instead, she stalked to the plate in the corner, bringing both it and a collection of innocuously titled tapes back to the table. Interspersed among the video images were blueprints to major city buildings, sewer and power line data, and dozens of other handy bits of information the underground had squirreled away. It turned out that the entry for the Volker plastics plant was remarkably detailed. The planning session lasted until late afternoon, but Johnny was still able to make it back to the Tolan's apartment before the sundown curfew. Two of the usual occupants, Marja's brother and nephew, refugees from the slagged town of Paris, were away for the night, giving Johnny the unusual luxury of a private sleeping room when the clan went to bed later in the evening. No one had asked about the meeting, but Johnny could sense that they were aware he'd be going on another mission soon. There was a subtle drawing back from him, as if they were building a last-minute emotional shell in case this was the mission from which he didn't return. Later that night, lying on his thin mattress, Johnny contemplated that possibility himself. Some day, he suspected, he would reach the point where walking into near-certain death wouldn't even bother him, but that day hadn't yet arrived, and he hoped to keep it at bay for a long time. Those who went into battle not caring if they died usually did. So in the last minutes before drifting off to sleep, he mentally listed all the reasons he had come through this mission alive, starting as always with his family, and ending with the effect it would have on Denise. The clock circuit built into their nanocomputers was at the same time the simplest and yet one of the most useful bits of equipment in the entire Cobra arsenal. Like the traditional soldier's chronometer, it enabled widespread forces to synchronize their movements. Going that instrument one better, though, it could be tied directly into the rest of the servo network to permit joint action on a microsecond scale. It opened up possibilities that had hitherto been the sole province of automatics, remotes, and the most elite mechanized line troops. And in exactly 12 minutes and 18 seconds, the gadget would once again pay for itself. Wriggling down the long vent pipe he'd entered from the Volker plant's unguarded south filter station, Johnny periodically checked the remaining time against his progress. He hadn't been wild about using this back door, Enclosed spaces were the single most dangerous environment a cobra could be trapped in, but so far it looked like the gamble was going to pay off. The alarms the troughs had installed at the far end had been easy enough to circumvent, and according to the blueprints he should very soon be exiting into a vat almost directly beneath the building's main entrance. He would then have until the timer ran down to find a position from which the inside door guards were visible. At one point, the troughs had relied heavily on portable black box sensors to defend converted civilian buildings like this, a practice the underground had gone to great lengths to discourage. The aliens quickly learned that no matter what thresholds the triggers were set at, their opponents soon figured out how to set off false alarms through them. After sufficient effort had been wasted chasing canine intruders and hunting for slingshot and firecracker-equipped harassers, They'd pulled out the automatics in favor of live guards equipped with warning sensors and dead man switches. The system was harder to fool, and almost as safe. Almost. Ahead of him, Johnny could see a spot of dark gray amid the black. The grill leading into the main building, probably. 
the faintness of the background light indicating that particular room was probably unoccupied. He hoped so. He didn't want to have to cut down any aliens this early in the mission. The crucial question, of course, was whether or not all the dead man switches could be deactivated in the microsecond before their owners were wiped out in the synchronized Cobra attack. That task would probably rest on Johnny's shoulders, since any relays for the alarms would be inside. The troughs had both closed and open-circuit types of switches, and he would have to determine which kind was being used here before taking action. He'd reached the grill now. Boosting his optical enhancers, he studied it for alarms and booby traps. A current detector from his equipment pack located four suspicious wires. Jumping them with adjustable impedance cables, he cut through the mesh with his fingertip lasers and slid through the last two-meter stretch of pipe into an empty vat. There was no provision for releasing its service openings from the inside, but Johnny's lasers took care of that oversight without any trouble. Poking his head out of the opening, he took a careful look around. He was suspended some five meters above the floor, his vat the largest in a row of similar structures. Four meters away, at eye level, was what looked like the exit from the room, reached from the floor by a set of stairs built into the wall. Given trough security thus far, Johnny expected nothing in the way of booby traps to be set up on the floor below. Still, he had just seven minutes to get into position upstairs, and to a cobra, a four-meter leap was as easy as a stroll down the walkway. Drawing up his feet, he balanced for a moment on the lip of the vat service opening and pushed off. The night before, he had warned himself of the dangers of apathy. Now, for one awful second, all the time he had, he recognized that overconfidence extracted an equally bitter price. The sharp twang of released springs filled his enhanced hearing, and the servos within his arms snapped his fingertip lasers into position faster than his brain could register the black wall hurtling itself toward him. But it was an essentially meaningless gesture, and even as the pencils of light flashed out, he realized the troughs had suckered him masterfully. A major military target, an enticing backdoor entrance with inadequate alarms, and finally a mid-air trap that used his helpless ballistic trajectory to neutralize the speed and strength advantage of his servos. The flying wall reached him, and he had just enough time to notice it was actually a net before it hit, wrapping itself around him like a giant cocoon. A split second later he was jerked sharply off his original path as unnoticed suspension lines reached their limit, snapping him back to hang more or less upside down in the middle of the room and Johnny was captured, which, since he was a cobra, meant that he was dead. His body didn't accept that fact so quickly, of course, and continued to strain cautiously against the sticky mesh digging into his clothing. But the limiting factor wasn't his servo's power, and it was all too clear that before the net would break, its threads would slice through both cloth and flesh, stopping only when it reached bone. Above his left foot his anti-armor laser flashed, vaporizing a small piece of the material and blowing concrete chips from the ceiling, but neither his leg or arms could move far enough to cause any serious damage to the net. If he could hit one or more of the lines holding him off the floor, but in the gloom, with his eyes covered by two or three layers of mesh, he couldn't even see them. Somewhere in the recesses of his mind, a direct neural stimulation alarm went off from the sensor monitoring his heartbeat. He was falling asleep. 
It was the enemy's final stroke, as inevitable as it was fatal. Pressed against the skin of his face, the contact drug mixed with the adhesive on the net was soaking into his bloodstream faster than the emergency stimulant system beneath his heart could compensate. He had bare seconds before the universe was forever closed off, and he had one vital task yet to perform. His tongue was a lump of unresponsive clay pressed against the roof of his mouth. With all the willpower remaining to him, he forced it to the corner of his mouth, forced it through wooden lips, touched the tip of the emergency radio trigger curving along his cheek. Abort, he mumbled. The room was growing darker, but it was far too much effort to click up his optical enhancers. Abort. Wacht. Trap. Somewhere far off he thought he heard a crisp acknowledgement, but it was too much effort to try and understand the words. It was too much effort, in fact, to do anything at all. The darkness rose and swept gently over him. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Larry Correa and Casey Azell, Griffin Barber, G. Scott Huggins, Sharon Shin, S.A. Bailey, Robert Butner, Michael Haspel, Chris Kennedy, Rob Howell, and Craig Martell for sitting down with DJ Butler. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. Until next time, this is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.